Our scripture this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 7, verses 1 to 24, and I'll be reading from the ESV. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If, on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We'll begin with some prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we ask and we beg that you would come. As we were just singing, God, that it would be so true in our hearts and it would be the longing of our hearts that you would make your glory known through your word. God, and if we have eyes that cannot see and hearts that cannot understand, open them up to behold your glory, God. Draw us to yourself, because left to our own devices, we will gladly not just turn away, but run away as fast as we can. God, subdue our wills that are bent away from you, that you might be worshipped, not just now, but throughout all of eternity, in spirit and in truth. Amen. <clears throat> hate salesmen. I just hate them. 
And I get the bit, and I know why they're doing what they're doing, right? They're, it's, I, what I feel is, though, like our odds are at, at you know, our, our wills and our desires are opposed to each other. What they're trying to do is make money for their family. What I'm trying to do is save money for my family. And so our, our desires are opposed to one another automatically. So I sit down and I go talk with them, and in my head I'm going, I don't believe a word you're saying. Because you're out to get me, and I'm cheap, and I know it. <laughs> and so, but imagine this. Imagine if you came across a salesman who wasn't trying to enrich himself to not make money for his own family, but to enrich someone else. Well, then you would let your guard down, wouldn't you? And you would be trusting of them. And this is the same exact thing that we see in our text here. Their approach to Christ is that they think you're out for your own glory, your own fame, and your own recognition. That's why you're bringing all these multitudes to follow you. And when Christ comes along, it says, no, no, no. One, I'm not speaking of my own authority. Two, I'm not even seeking my own glory. If you want to leave, that's fine. You can go ahead and leave. Don't you, don't you remember that in chapter 6? And so their understanding of Christ is completely backwards and twisted. And it's rooted in their unbelief and it perpetuates in further and more and more unbelief. So what are we going to see in our text here? We have to be aware, beware of our unbelief. Verses 1 through 9, what are we going to see? Uh, that you cannot presume upon your proximity. Even his brothers did not believe. Even his own brothers did not believe. And how many times do we presume that we are going to be fine with God as we stand before God because someone else in our family, our mothers, our, our parents, our husband, our wife, because they're believers, as though that's going to be enough. So number one, how can we beware of unbelief? Well, don't presume upon proximity to someone else who has faith. Number two, we're going to see this Christ apart from the cross in verses 10 through 13. When we see Christ apart from the cross, we, come, we reduce him down to what we want him to be so then we can argue with him and push him away. But no, we have to take Christ on his own terms and argue with that or we will continue in our unbelief. So don't presume upon your proximity. Don't see Christ apart from the cross and reduce him down into something that you can dismiss. And then finally, starting at verse 14 through the end, we're going to see Christ, his own response to unbelief. How does he address it? He sees their doubt. He sees their unbelief. How does he address it and what does he say? We'll get to that at the end. So number one here, don't presume upon proximity. Let's read here in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of the booths uh, was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You, you guys, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And here's Christ, a man who's done nothing wrong whatsoever. But he's not free to walk around wherever he, he might. So what's it, the great accusation that they have against him? That he healed a man? That he fed 5,000? No, the great offenses were not that, but that they were religious and political in their nature. That he healed a man, but he healed him on the Sabbath. Not that he fed the multitudes. That was great. Everybody had a great time. But it was the lecture and the sermon that followed. That's what they didn't like. You feed people, they love you. You tell them, if you're Christ, that you're the bread of life. And you're the only way to go back to the Father. So they must eat your flesh and drink your blood. That is, they must believe in you. Oh, no, no. No, just give them food. Give them, what them, give them what they want. So because of these great offenses, Christ is not even able to go about in the city that he made, that city that he spoke into existence. See, remember in John 1, he's given us, we were there months ago, he's given us this interpretive framework and in how we're able to understand this gospel. He, in him was life, John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true life, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So because of this, he's not even able to walk around in Judea amongst his own people because they want to kill him, because he healed somebody on the Sabbath, because he told them truthfully that he is the only way to go back to the Father. Their unbelief in God makes a straight line in animosity and hatred towards Christ. But he... Verse 2 here. This festival of the booths was at hand. Uh, this would take place on the, the seventh month. Um, so Passover is on the first month, which was in chapter 6. Now you're about five, six months later. It typically happens late September, early October. In the 15th of Tishri, their seventh month. And they would come for seven days to commemorate the, the Jewish people living as they're wandering throughout the wilderness. You can read this in numbers. As they're wandering around for 40 years and they have no homes, but now they have permanent homes. And they would celebrate this feast and they would go to Jerusalem and the whole place, except for the Roman Antonio's fortress, the whole place, the squares, the hills, everything would be filled with these temporal booths. It looked like Portland, basically. And, and, they, would, and they would settle in and they would... <laughs> I need a better filter. And they would, they would stay there for seven days. And Christ is now reminding them. You have this little overtones of, well, that is Christ that is now tabernacling among us. 
And we too are not even in our permanent homes. We too are wandering now, awaiting to go to our true promised land with the Father. But let's look at the brothers' unbelief here. Number one, what are they, what are they doing here? Look in verse 4. For no one does these works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus, you're doing all of these miracles in the back country. Go down to the main city. Right? You can hear, you can hear the, the, the sarcasm just dripping off it. Can't you? If, you? if you're really able to do this, brother, then go do it amongst the masses. Implication. If you don't, you probably can't. And they're pressing him towards that. But they're unable to believe because they're projecting what they would do into Christ. So they can't see it. It's so much of our own belief. And our doubts are rooted in Christ not doing what we would want. God, make your glory made known through Christ. Heal my daughter. But she's not healed. Unbelief. Doubts begin to come in. And when this is your approach, you will undoubtedly, you'll just get jaded. Because Christ is not going to do exactly what you want. He's going to do the will of his heavenly Father. So from this, doubts and unbelief begin to spring forth. And then verse 5 here. With great fear, look at this. For not even his brothers believed in him. All that they had seen and all that they had known was not enough. Undoubtedly, they would have been with him at the wedding in Cana, seeing this miracle. You see other people believing, other people following, but that's not enough for them. Perhaps they were amongst the multitude that turned away in the previous chapter. It's just, it's just too much. It's just too much. What you are saying is too much. Let me have my religious life with, with your food. But remember how you became a child of God. Remember how this happens. Again, go back to chapter 1. It's our lens to, by which we understand this. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. How does this happen? Not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but from God. They cannot believe, and the fact that they are half-brothers with Christ means nothing. Nothing whatsoever. And let me ask you this, if their proximity to Christ was not enough to bring and induce them to believe, do you think your proximity to other believers is going to be enough? Absolutely not. Children, do not presume that God will be merciful to you because of the faith of your parents. Parents, Never for a moment 
presume that your faith is enough, that your cup will overflow enough to fill up your, ch- your child's. No, not at all. And one of the traps I fall into is that I just kind of look at them as a collective whole, like, oh, would you, you know, by study or worship with the family and then everything's like, no, each individual child needs to be called to repent. All of his brothers needed, as an individual, needed to be called to repent and come to the grasp with reality of their sin and their need of a Savior. Or perhaps you're coming here, my dear friend, because you want a religious experience. It's a pretty good one. But it's not enough. To be in proximity to other believers is certainly not enough. You must come and believe yourself. Perhaps the most common that I run across is the unwise husband who thinks that the wife, his wife's faith will be enough. Like it'll be like a basketball, like a pick and roll. She'll kind of obstruct God a little bit and he'll be able to get around and kind of sneak into heaven and, you know, unbeknownst to God. No, it's not going to happen. The faith of your wife is not enough. You must believe yourself. And don't, if you see all of these things happening around you, praise God. But you yourself individually will come to terms with God face to face. Third part that's kind of feeding into their unbelief that we can learn from. You have to be concerned about comfort. Jesus said to them in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. It hates me. The world cannot hate you. It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus is coming and unrolling the darkness of this kingdom that has come after the fall, after Genesis 3. And of course the world hates him. He's taking back what is rightfully his. Of course the world is going to hate him. And now by nature of our birth, we're surrounded by this kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of heaven is coming and conquering it. Now imagine that you're not just living in the territory of the enemy of your great king. But you're rather enjoying yourself there. Imagine this. Imagine if you, you're living on a, um, a, a battle line in between two nations. And the nation of darkness has come and conquered your city. And you don't care. You just carry on with great comfort and great ease. Where's Christ? The world hates him. Because he will subdue them and he will conquer them. But we, we're we're entirely comfortable, unfortunately. The brothers in their unbelief, they're in the world and their affection is for the world. And so the world cannot hate them because they love one another. So how can we beware of unbelief here? Don't project your own desires upon Christ. Because he is going to do the will of his heavenly father. And that could have nothing to do with your will whatsoever. 
So align yourselves with the will of God. Don't presume upon your proximity, children, parents, husbands, and wives. Don't presume upon your proximity to other believers as though that will be enough. It wasn't enough for his own brothers. It's not going to be enough for us. And then finally, don't allow the affections for the world to make you comfortable in this land that God is conquering and will subdue. So now let's see how also they see Christ and how do they portray him and what's missing. Let's go back to the text here in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. All right, so let's just clear the air. He says, I'm not going to the feast. You read, like two verses later, boom, he's at the feast. Kind of what's happening here. Either he's, John doesn't know what he's writing, and he's a complete hypocrite, or there's something else happening here. I think what Christ is saying is, I'm not going to go to the feast in the way that you want me to. You want me to go publicly. You want me to go with this initial wave that's going to make it there on day one and make a big scene. I'm not going to go like that. I'm not going to play that game. However, I'm still going to go and fulfill my obligations to go for this feast towards to Jerusalem. So he eventually goes, and the people are muttering there, kind of speaking under the breath. It doesn't mean necessarily evil things, but they're kind of muttering, oh, is he, oh, he's there. What's, what's happening? What's happening? And they, you see, how do they see Christ? They understand Christ in two different ways. What do you see here? Look at your text in verse 12. Number one, he's a good man. Number two, he's leading people astray. And this is the same thing that people say now about Christ. It's the same weak accusations that we make about Christ. Oh, he's a good man. Absolutely. Yes, that's true. He is a good man. But it's also incredibly deceitful. Calling him a good man does not fully capture who he is. It's a greater insult to him than the nails that pierced his hands. Some of the kindest, most gentle men that I know, they do not believe, but they do think Christ was a good man. And so I too shall be a good moral man. How convenient though. To categorize him like this. How easy to dismiss him then. A good man does not demand your life. A good man does not demand your worship. And a good man does not demand all of your affections, all of your heart to be directed towards him and him alone. But Christ does. He says, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life. In you whatsoever. He's a good man. A little, a little pat on the head. How emasculating. How weak. Ah, he's a good man. Yeah, that's great. Or, he's leading people astray. Remember in your Old Testament, the false prophets, 
that would lead the people astray and brought them into exile as a nation. Therefore, you have to watch out for this Jesus because he's going to be just like those false prophets who brought the people, our people, into exile. Better to lose one man than to lose a whole nation into exile, right? Makes sense. Be careful. He's leading these people astray. Again, this is one of the main accusations of Christ now. Remember when Christian was leading, leaving the city of destruction. The whole time, everybody around him, they thought he was being led astray. And just think about it. If you're towards, running towards hell joyfully and somebody turns towards Christ, of course they're being led astray. They're going to the celestial city. They're going to heaven. They're not going to hell. So when your face is pointing that way, anybody who's going to heaven, yeah, they're fools. They're being led astray. That's what Christ will do to you. He'll pull you out of that grasp. So to see Christ in these ways is either naive or intentionally deceitful. Christ is not just a good man or someone who's leading people astray. He's the eternally begotten Son of the Father, sent to redeem His people, His sheep, by dying Himself upon the cross. For us, we, we need to understand that you cannot see Christ in this way. You cannot see Christ apart from the cross. Yes, we see him as a great humanitarian, a great moral teacher, perhaps a magician. No, he's so much more than that. He's the son of God who has come to die for his people, to die for you. That you might turn to him and have eternal life. So one of the main problems here is that they have not wrestled with Christ. They put him in these categories, but they haven't wrestled, actually wrestled with the terms. No one's denied that he did the healing. No one's denied that he's legitimate to saying that he is the bread of life. No one's denying that. They can't. So beware of your unbelief. When you build up this false Christ, oh, he's a good man, or he leads people astray. He's a zealot. I used to have a good friend, and he got religious. He was led astray. Beware of that. And when you come to wrestle with Christ, wrestle with him on his own terms. Christ never said, I'm a good man. Not once. Come to him. Wrestle with him on his own terms. Okay, so we see all of this unbelief, but then how does Christ respond to it? Let's read verses 14 and 15 here. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Christ, uh, missing the first day uh, during this, this and the Passover, the first day and the last day are the most, most important. And this intervening day is the Chol Hamut. They were this intervening days in which there's not as many activities going on, still some extra sacrifices. But the first day and the last day are the most important. But they'd still be going around the temple, singing part of the great Halal in Psalm 118. And what are they singing? Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, deliver us. 
And as they're singing that, Christ comes into the temple, the one who will save them, the one who will deliver them. And they begin to marvel at his teaching. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. To have a problem with Christ or to have unbelief towards him is not to have a problem with him, but the one who sent him, and that is God. So we can stop with our false piety and our false goodness apart from a life in Christ that is rooted in Christ, that is built upon Christ. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Do you get it? What is Christ's main argument towards their unbelief? No argument is rational enough. For those who have an unbelieving heart. No evidence is enough for those whose eyes cannot see. How do you know? I hate to tell you. But you know. What does it say? He will know. You're seeking after God. You're seeking to do the will of God. How do you know that this Christ is real? Well, you, you know. And nobody can take it away from you. Nobody, you. nobody can make you now deny it. Same way. Why do you love your wife? I just do. How do you categorize it? You just do. Is it there? Yes, it's absolutely true. Substantial. You would never deny it. The same way. How are you going to respond to all these accusations, Christ? Well, if it's anyone willed, is to do God's will, he will know. Whether my teaching is from God or whether it's my own authority. I am sent by God. And you'll know when you know. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Verse 18 then. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Go back to our intro. This is why I hate salesmen. It's because I presume that they're for their own enrichment, for their own glory. But what if this Christ, whom you doubt, what if this Christ in whom you do not believe, what if he's not actually for his own enrichment? What if he's not for his own glory? How could he be accused of leading people astray? He's not leading them to himself. Now, why would a man... Go to a cross and die the most horrible death. And take the punishment of others upon himself. All that so, so that someone else can be glorified? That makes no sense. You wouldn't do it. Nobody would. So either, many people have made this argument here. So either he's crazy... Like just a lunatic, bat crazy. And you have no hope. You have no hope whatsoever. 
So either he's crazy or he's a liar and he's a fool to give himself for this lie. And the disciples are all fools because they're all dead in the faith. And every martyr since then, they're all fools. And you guys are fools too. You're fools for being here. But you know that's not true because I'm here. So he's, he's not crazy. He's not lying to us. What if he actually is who he says he is? What if he is the one through whom all things were made? What if he is the Alpha and the Omega? What if he is the living water and the bread of life? What if he is the one in whom you shall place all of your trust and all of your hope and all of your life? Absolutely he is. And he is worthy of it all. So what do we do with this? What do we do? Number one, we've said it a dozen times, beware of your unbelief. It's natural for you to be there. That's where you're born. And not believing. And so gently, calmly, we can go down this beautiful stream. Idyllic. Until, until you come to the point of the great fall. Up, up north in north of Duluth, there's uh, the Brule River, and it goes up, and they beautiful river, and it drops right down into this, they call it the devil's kettle, and nobody for hundreds of years knew what happens to this water. <laughs> it just goes down into this hole in the middle of the ground. Such is your life in unbelief. You think Christ is the great deceiver? No, no, no. It is your unbelief that is deceiving you. Thinking that this gentle flowing stream of a life you have will continue on forever. No, that's, that's deceitful. That's what it is. For those who are in unbelief, they will have peace one moment and then eternal judgment the next as they fall into the hands of an angry God. Beware of your unbelief. Don't remain just spiritually neutral. That's not it. Number two, brothers and sisters, understand the difference between unbelief and doubts, just as a pragmatic thing. Understand the difference between unbelief and doubts. Un unbelief is this rejection of Christ, that you don't need him, and that you're fine without him. Why would I worship this good man? I'm a good man myself. That's unbelief. But oftentimes, we have doubts. And though you believe it, you have an inability to comprehend the vastness of it. Do really, does God really love me? When I know all of my sins, the most vile of my thoughts, He knows them and He still loves me? To have doubts is common to nearly every saint. And so don't allow Satan to... Take this with these doubts, which are a byproduct of our, of our weakness and frailty as being humans. Don't allow Satan to grab a hold of that and to cause further doubt upon further doubt upon further doubt. Know the difference between unbelief, cold unbelief, and the doubting heart that is going towards Christ. And then finally, number three, go to verse 18. But the one who seeks the glory... 
of him who sent him is true. Seek the glory of the one who sent Christ. The first step in doing this is repenting of all your sins and pleading with God that your unbelief might be turned to belief. You can't do it yourself. The flesh is of no help. It is a gift of God, the work of God in you. But plead with him. Ask him to turn your unbelief into belief. The believing in Christ, in Christ alone, to wash away all of your sins is the greatest thing, the first step towards giving all of this glory towards God your Father. So trust in him now. Give him all the glory that he is due. And ask that your unbelieving heart might be turned towards him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we, like sheep, have gone astray. But you have sent your Son to take upon himself the chastisement, the trespasses, the sin of the world. And in that, you are delighted. You are fully satisfied. God, let us believe in that. Let us never have any doubts. Wash them away, God. Turn our unbelief into believing on God. The doubts that we might have, take them away. Let us see you in all of your glory and fully believe in you and trust in you. Amen. Amen.